Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. With the U.S. presidential election dominating headlines, I thought it would be timely to look back at some surgical history of previous presidents. A number of them, not surprisingly, have had a wide variety of surgeries. In fact, I was surprised how many there were, and to make sure I cover all of the interesting cases thoroughly, I've decided to split this into two podcasts. So today we'll focus on some of the earlier presidents, all of which are interesting in their own right and have significant historical implications, and next time get into a few modern presidents. As usual, we'll also get into some other interesting history in this episode of Legends of Surgery. So I wasn't sure how to organize these podcasts, as each story has its own degrees of interest. But I think I'll keep it simple and just stick to a chronological order. Now the list is not exhaustive, but I've tried to limit it to the ones that are most interesting. Today we'll cover four presidents, and next time we'll cover three more. Let's start at the beginning with the first president of the United States, George Washington. The commander-in-chief of the American Revolutionary War was elected president and was inaugurated on April 30, 1789, at the Federal Hall in New York City, which was one of the cities where Congress would convene. The seat of government moved to Washington, D.C. in 1800, which was named after him. Now, Barely in office, he developed a painful carbuncle in his left thigh and was near death with a high fever. Apparently, he suffered with it long enough to rebuild his carriage to allow him to lie at full length. A quick pause. The word carbuncle refers to a large, painful swelling of the skin and underlying tissues, in this case likely an abscess, and comes from the Latin carbunculus, which means a red gem or live coal. Same root word as carbon. So he eventually had to have it lanced, meaning have it open to allow the pus to drain out. Washington chose Dr. Samuel Bard, his personal physician, and the first physician known to have treated a president. Bard was considered a top doctor in New York in the 1780s, and he and his 73-year-old father, who was also a physician, on June 17th at the president's residence on Franklin Square, did the operation. His father was recorded to have said to Bard, quote, Cut away. Deeper. Deeper still. Don't be afraid. You see how well he bears it, end quote. Side note on Samuel Bard. He founded the first medical school in New York City, which was only the second in the United States, at King's College, which is now known as Columbia University College of Physicians and Surgeons. So Washington survived and fully recovered, going on to lead the country until 1797. During his retirement, in December of 1799, he spent the evening riding around his plantation on horseback, and the next day developed a severe sore throat, eventually having difficulty breathing and almost completely unable to speak or swallow. Now, Washington was a firm believer in bloodletting, meaning intentionally bleeding a patient to cure them, and so were the three physicians that were called to see him. They removed a massive amount of blood. One of the doctors realized it wasn't working, and proposed an emergency tracheotomy, meaning opening the windpipe to relieve an obstruction to breathing. This was a last-ditch effort, as few doctors knew how to do it at the time. They decided not to attempt this, and Washington died the next day. Many historians believe that it was due to epiglottitis, which is inflammation of part of the airway, and hypovolemia, meaning low blood volume, probably from all the bloodletting. Next, we'll skip ahead to the 20th president, James A. Garfield, who was only in office from March to September of 1881. The reason it was so short is the reason we're covering him. On July 2nd, at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Station in Washington, D.C., Garfield was shot by Charles J. Gateau. The reason was that Gateau wanted an appointment to be the consul in Paris, as he had supported Garfield's candidacy. His logic was that by killing the president, he'd break up the warring factions in the Republican Party, which would lead to his appointment. Not a great plan. 
So hiding in the ladies' room at the station, Gateau was able to get to point-blank range of the president, as the U.S. presidents did not have protection back then. He shot him twice, one that glanced off his arm and the other that pierced his back. Dr. Willard Bliss, a surgeon and an expert in ballistic, meaning bullet, trauma, led the team that cared for the president. Many physicians probed the wound with unsterilized fingers and instruments, as Dr. Joseph Lister's antisepsis work had not yet taken hold in America, at least not to the doctors treating Garfield. Determining the path of the bullet was considered standard practice, and even Alexander Graham Bell was brought in to try to locate the bullet using a primitive metal detector. Unsuccessfully, by the way. Now, initially showing signs of shock, amazingly Garfield started to recover after the first two weeks before developing an abscess near the bullet entrance wound. Although it was opened, cleaned with carbolic acid, and even had a drain put in place, he also received some more dubious treatments, including nutrient enemas of egg bouillon, whiskey, and paragoric, as he was too ill to eat. Paragoric, by the way, was an old type of uh, opium medication. Anyway, he eventually died on September 19th, more than two months after being shot. An autopsy found multiple abscesses in his abdomen and lungs. During his defense, Gateau argued that Garfield was not killed by him, but by medical malpractice, saying, quote, I deny the killing, if your honor please. We admit the shooting, end quote. In retrospect, and even in the opinion of many leaders of surgery at the time, there was some truth to this. And we don't have to go too far in time for our next example. This time we'll look at one of the most interesting surgical events involving a president, a man who is both the 22nd and 24th president, and the only one to serve non-consecutive terms, Stephen Grover Cleveland. Shortly after his second inauguration on June 13th of 1893, the president showed the White House physician Major Robert Maitland O'Reilly a rough place on the roof of his mouth. The doctor described an ulcerating lesion the size of a quarter with cauliflower granulations. Pathologists love food analogies. Scrapings were sent to the Army Medical Museum without identifying the patient, and after consulting with a doctor at Johns Hopkins Hospital, a diagnosis of malignancy was made. Now, this became an issue of national security, and the diagnosis was kept secret. The reason deserves some context. 1893 was known as the Panic, a serious economic depression related to a run on the U.S.'s gold reserves, which was due to the fear that the U.S. would abandon the gold standard. The gold standard itself actually was abandoned uh, in the 1930s during the Depression. Interestingly, though, we still use the term gold standard when we describe the best treatment. Anyways, Cleveland was a supporter of the gold standard, and pledged to lead the country out of economic disaster. So on the evening of June 30, 1893, Cleveland boarded the Oneida, a yacht belonging to his friend Commodore Elias C. Benedict, which was docked in New York City. The surgical team all boarded separately to not arise suspicion. This included the lead Dr. Joseph Bryant, an eminent surgeon of the day. Interestingly, although he had published a paper three years earlier describing 250 surgeries of the type proposed for the president, Brian himself had only done two. Also on the team was Dr. William Keane, a pioneer in neurosurgery, and a New York dentist, Dr. Ferdinand Hausbrook, responsible for both the tooth extractions needed and the anesthesia, and as well there were a number of other assisting doctors present. On July 1st, 1893, at sea, in the yacht saloon which had been converted to an operating room, the surgery took place. Starting at 12.31 p.m., Hasbrook anesthetized Cleveland with nitrous oxide and ether and extracted two teeth. The tissues were anesthetized topically with cocaine, which was commonly used medically at the time, and Bryant and Keene resected tissue and bone, packing the defect with gauze soaked with iodine. 
The operation, known as an intraoral partial maxillectomy, was complete at 1.55 p.m., taking an hour and 24 minutes to complete. The intraoral part, meaning the surgery was done through the mouth, was chosen partly to avoid any facial scars that would give away the operation. On July 5th, four days after the surgery, the Oneida docked at Buzzards Bay in Massachusetts. Another dentist made a vulcanized rubber maxillary obturator, like a plug to fill in the defect, that was so successful that Cleveland was able to address Congress on August 7th, just over a month after his surgery. On August 29th, the entire story was published in the Philadelphia Press, leaked by the dentist Dr. Hasbrook to reporter Elisha J. Edwards. The White House denied the story, sticking to the cover story that the president had simply had teeth pulled and destroyed the reporter's reputation and career. Edwards could barely find work for 15 years until taking up with a fledgling newspaper known as the Wall Street Journal. In 1917, nearly 25 years after the surgery and 10 years after Cleveland's death, one of the participating surgeons, Dr. Keene, unhappy how unfairly the reporter had been treated, wrote a confessional in the Saturday Evening Post clearing Edwards' name. Now, Cleveland survived another 15 years and died of unrelated causes. Amazingly, the tissues from the lesion were re-examined in 1980 and found to be a type of cancer with a good prognosis called a verrucous carcinoma. However, it was a testament to his treating doctors that they were able to remove the lesion and repair the defect, leaving him capable of leading the country out of economic chaos. And we don't have far to go for our next president, number 25, William McKinley. On September 4, 1901, he went to Buffalo to attend the Pan American Exposition. On September 6th, at the Temple of Music, Leon F. Zolgos approached the president with a pistol wrapped in a handkerchief and shot him twice with a 32 caliber revolver. Zolgos, a 28-year-old man from Ohio, had been inspired by European assassinations and the teachings of the anarchist Emma Goldman and wanted to eliminate a world leader to show his dedication to the anarchist movement. McKinley was transported to the nearby Exposition Hospital, which was a temporary one-story facility not designed for surgery, rather than the Buffalo General Hospital. However, it should be noted that the physician in charge of the facility, Dr. Roswell Park, had actually performed an appendectomy there earlier in the week, and he was very experienced in gunshot wounds, but when the president was shot, Park was in Niagara Falls performing another surgery. When he heard about the president, he traveled by train to Buffalo as soon as possible, but arrived just as the operation was concluding. Side note, in Buffalo, the Roswell Park Cancer Institute is named after him. Anyways, a number of surgeons had arrived to help, and Dr. Mann, a widely respected obstetrician and gynecologist, was selected to lead the team despite having no experience with gunshot wounds and little experience with upper abdominal surgery. The doctors agreed that Buffalo General was too far and they had to operate at the Exposition Hospital. The only surgical instruments available was a pocket set belonging to one of the doctors, although unknown to the team, there was a chest full of instruments in the anteroom of the building. The doctor in charge of anesthesia, Dr. Wasden, chose ether, which meant that the surgeons could not use gaslights due to its flammable nature. So they used a mirror to try to reflect light from the sun into the operative field. Once started, it was clear that one of the bullets had been deflected by a button on the president's jacket, causing only superficial abrasions. But the second bullet found its mark, hitting McKinley in the abdomen. Mann removed a piece of clothing from the bullet tract, opened the abdomen, and found the stomach had been perforated. After closing the holes and removing some tissue from the bullet tract, they closed up the abdomen. The bullet was never found. So the president was moved to a house, and a few other doctors joined, including Dr. Charles McBurney, of McBurney's Point fame, a place in the abdomen that corresponds to the location of the appendix. While there, the president had fever and a fast heart rate. Although there was some hope that his condition was improving, he took a turn for the worse and passed away on September 14th, eight days after being shot. 
The autopsy showed extensive necrosis, or dead tissue, and a laceration, or cut, of the pancreas with associated inflammation of the pancreas, acute pancreatitis. But truthfully, there were a number of problems with the surgical treatment. The failing afternoon light being reflected into the wound, and McKinley's body habitus, he was not a small man, made visibility of the operative field less than ideal. Apparently an electric generator was found to provide light, but this was at the end of the operation. The incomplete surgical set of equipment lacked even basic things like retractors to open up the wound, again limiting visibility and access. Finally, the inexperience of the surgeons in dealing with gunshot wounds likely didn't help. Now, retrospectively, some have suggested that no evidence exists to support the notion that the president required an emergency operation by unprepared surgeons in suboptimal conditions, and that the president should have been transported to the Buffalo General Hospital, where more experienced surgeons with proper equipment and operating rooms likely would have had more success. One of the other contentious points is whether or not a surgical drain should have been put in place, which allows fluid and blood to be taken out of the abdomen. It seems like this might have been standard practice even then. However, other authors have argued that most of the care provided was reasonable for the time and under the conditions available. Finally, one last interesting point on this case. In a letter to the editor of the journal Pancreas, it was suggested that this was the first reported case of traumatic gunshot pancreatitis, which is kind of cool. So one final interesting point from history. Zolgos, the assassin, was found guilty of murder and executed by electrocution. After being placed in the grave, sulfuric acid was poured over him to discourage anarchists from trying to exhume him or make his grave a site of martyrdom. So despite this tragedy, which was now the third assassination of a U.S. president, we didn't cover Lincoln, uh, it was decided that security needed to be improved. The Secret Service dates back to the end of the American Civil War and was originally founded to combat the widespread counterfeiting of U.S. currency as part of the Department of the Treasury. In 1901, the agency was asked to begin its protective mission of the president after the assassination of McKinley, although in 1894, it began sort of an informal part-time protection of presidents at that time Cleveland. Today, it still investigates financial crimes along with its role in protecting designated protectees. The Secret Service has an annual budget of 1.8 billion U.S. dollars and 4,400 sworn members. So that starts our exploration of surgery and presidents, and it's interesting to wonder how things may have been different had these operations gone differently. Clearly, surgeons have impacted the course of history. So that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll cover some of the more modern presidents. And in the interim, keep an eye on Twitter as I'll be posting some of the other presidents that deserve an honorable mention but didn't make the cut for the podcast. And speaking of the podcast, please rate it on iTunes and leave a comment there or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends. Like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.